just when you thought there was no hope for baby boomers. It's the Rational Boomer Podcast. Logic, common sense, compassion. Yeah, who knew? Now, here's Mike. We are back on the Rational Boomer Podcast. Hopefully your day is going well. It's Tuesday and already things popping out there. Some big stories that we will talk about today on the podcast. Um, I wanted to bring up a couple of things. First of all, you remember when I went to Georgia. And prior to going to Georgia, I did a lot of pre-recorded, really pre-recorded podcast and put them up. And they were good shows. And we had some listeners come in and help me out and do the shows ahead of time. But there were some people out there that while they like the shows, they prefer the more immediate shows, meaning recorded on the day of that they would listen to it. And I get that. I'd prefer to do it that way because we're talking about current events and news stories. So it's important to have that timeliness. Well, some people would send me a note and say, you know, maybe you want to hold back off that trips to Georgia thing so you can keep doing the podcast. And they were half kidding and half being truthful. And and as I say, I get it. I get it. I would rather do the more current podcast. Well, I've got some good news. Got some good news and some good news. The good news is I will be going back to Georgia frequently because my wife and I bought a small condo there, nothing extravagant, just a place to go other than where we live. But the good news is I bought some equipment that I'm going to bring down there, so whenever I'm down there, I will have the very same equipment that I have here to do the podcast. So if I'm down in Georgia, I can do a nightly podcast just like I would do it here. So We'll see what happens. The only thing I have to do is when I'm down in Georgia, I have to do it later at night like I do now after my wife uh, gets to sleep. I don't want her to have to sit and listen to the podcast or me ignore her when she's awake. So it's usually after um, she's sleeping. And And I'll be honest with you, my wife and kids maybe don't appreciate the extent of my interest in doing the podcast. I mean, it's important to me, and I feel good about the fact that because I'm getting the interactions from listeners and we're getting more and more listeners every day, it's becoming more of essentially a radio show, something I was familiar with doing in my past when I worked into radio. So it's not like one or two people are listening. I'm just doing this for my ego. I think there's enough people in the audience that want to hear it, so I feel obligated to provide what I promised, and and, and that's what I do. But But... But I don't think my, my uh, well, I know my kids and my wife don't listen to it, mainly because they think they hear it from me 24-7, which may be true. But they will give me shit about it. I was sitting at dinner with my wife and my youngest son, and uh, <laughs> we were talking about what we're going to do with the rest of the night after we have dinner. <laughs> and my son looks at my wife and he goes, I know what Noam Chomsky over here is going to be doing. He's got to do his fucking podcast. <laughs> 
Now, to some of you, that might sound disrespectful, and I guess it could be a little disrespectful, but you have to understand, in my family, giving people shit is one way of showing love. We've been giving shit to each other since I was a little kid, and it's carried over into my family. If I go to my brother's house and I see my nieces and nephews, I give them shit, but of course, they give it back to me. I want to tell you two quick stories uh, to give you a sense of how my kids started off their lives by me giving them shit. And I've always thought, you know, I give my kids whatever they want. And I love those guys. And, and we did a lot of great things when we were young, when they were younger. But, but I always did give them shit. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, <laughs> one time I'm with my oldest son. And he's probably about seven or eight. And uh, I bought him, my wife and I had bought him a TV set for Christmas or something, and he didn't like it, which was made sense because he was too young to have a fucking TV set. But I was trying to take the easy way out. So instead, I said, look, man, if you're not happy with this, I get it. Why don't we go back to Target tomorrow? You and I will return the TV set, and you can take all that money and buy whatever you want. And he was happy about that. He was excited about that. <laughs> and so we go back, and he ultimately spends about $300 on various and a sundry plastic Batman shit. <laughs> but whatever, man, that's what the kid wanted. That was cool. So we go up to the counter, we pay for it. And as we're paying, after we pay for it, we go to the door to walk out. Now, this seems to always happen in Target. This is commonplace, but my son wasn't aware of it. We get to the door, and they have the security things, the metal detectors, those sorts of things. (laughs) And as soon as we hit those things, of course, it goes off. Now, I know it's just a screwed up thing that happens all the time. Nobody even really pays attention to it most of the time, at least back then. And so we hit this, the buzzer goes off. And you have to understand, my oldest son is one of these kids that never did anything wrong. He was just the best kid. He would never do anything wrong. So we get to there and it buzzes. He puts his hands over his mouth and he looks at me, scared as to suggest, what should I do? (laughs) So I thought about it for a second, and as I looked at him, I looked at him, and he's still got his hand over his mouth, and he's scared to death. He's looking at me, and I go, run. (laughs) Now, you might think that's me, and maybe it was a little bit, but uh, uh, he didn't know what to do then. He knew that buzzer going off meant a bad thing, but now his dad is telling him to bolt out of this place. We paid for this shit. It was fine. And, uh, you know, when he was a little kid, I would give him shit. When he got older, when he was in high school, I gave him shit. And they constantly give it to me. It's just part of how we live. Now, with my younger son, I had another situation. (laughs) And this was funny. He and I went to get our haircuts at a a strip mall type of place, like cost cutters or something like that. And so we both get our haircuts. And... As we're leaving, I pay and we're leaving, we get to the door and I said, hold up, dude. He said, what? I said, you have to understand here. We got our haircuts. Both you and I look really good. I mean, really good. 
And because we look that good, there's an excellent chance when we walk out that door to get to the car, we're going to have girls all over us, women all over us, because we look so goddamn good. And he looked at me, he goes, really? I go, well, it's a distinct possibility. You have to understand. I said, here's what I want you to do. When we open that door, I want you to run down that sidewalk and get to the car as fast as you can. (laughs) So we open the door and he bolts. He's running down the sidewalk, perfectly safe. He's running down the sidewalk toward the car. I'm walking a little fast, but I'm not going to run. I walk out the door and I turn the corner and I'm looking at him. (laughs) As he gets to the car, he turns and looks at me. And he sees a woman coming up from behind me to go into the <laughs> the barber shop. And this poor woman doesn't know what's going on. And as I'm walking toward him and he sees this woman coming up from behind me, I didn't even see her. He says, Dad, look out. <laughs> I turn around and this woman has no fucking clue what's going on. <laughs> so my point is, is we always had fun together. We always gave each other shit. And they learned from a very young age that it's okay to give dad shit too. But here's one rule. (laughs) One rule you never break. Do not give mom shit because she doesn't take it so well. (laughs) Anyway, enough of uh, of the blathering. I'm good at blathering, aren't I? Anyway, we're going to talk about some of the things that are going on. and, and, And there are some very... Serious shit going on. Seems like every week there's new stories, there's big stories, and it doesn't seem to ever stop. All right. Now, here's the interesting thing. We had Donald Trump as president. We now have Joe Biden. There are some distinct differences between these two people. Donald Trump is currently hosting a golf tournament backed by Saudi Arabia, who has some problems when it comes to terroristic behavior. Now, the guy they call Sleepy Joe Biden, who's now had COVID twice, has a different take on terrorism. Joe Biden gave the order to kill a gentleman by the name of Ayman al-Zawahiri. I believe that's how you pronounce it. But before he did that, he wanted to intimately understand where the Al-Qaeda leader was hiding. Now, this Al-Qaeda leader uh, is the main guy, the big guy. He is the guy that took over for Osama bin Laden. He is now the leader. Well, he was the leader. (laughs) Joe Biden um, ordered a U.S. drone strike that killed Zabahiri on his balcony in downtown Kabul was the product of months of highly secret planning by Biden and a tight circle of his senior advisors. Among the preparations was a small-scale model of this guy's safe house constructed by intelligence officials and placed inside the White House Situation Room for Biden to examine as he debated his options. Now, see, here's another dramatic difference between Biden and uh, Donald Trump. Donald Trump's not a details guy. (laughs) he's the kind of guy that would sit in the office and say, yeah, blow that fucker away. I don't care how you do it. Joe Biden, on the other hand, wants to understand this because this is a serious decision. It's a uh, big decision. 
You see, the difference is Joe Biden, whether you like him or don't like him, he's actually a president. He understands the job Donald Trump never did. For Biden, the opportunity to take out the world's most wanted terrorist, one of the masterminds of the September 11, 2001 attacks, was fraught with risk of accidentally killing citizens in the Afghan capital, just as a U.S. drone did 11 months ago during the chaotic U.S. military withdrawal from the country. Now, you know what happened back then and how much heat he got, so you had to take a similar risk here, but it was worth it. Now, keep in mind, this is 2022. This is the guy who took over for Osama bin Laden, but he was the second-hand man to Osama bin Laden back in 2001. So he was part of that whole plan uh, for 9-11. Now, details of the strike and its planning were disclosed by a senior administration official as Biden was preparing to announce the omission on Monday. Throughout the months-long effort to plan this weekend strike, Biden repeatedly tasked his officials with ensuring civilians, including members of uh, this terrorist family, weren't killed. None were, according to the White House. Again, Donald Trump say, just bomb the piss out of him. I don't care who the fuck dies. Joe Biden is a little more sensible, is a little more compassionate about this thing. Biden, who was isolating due to COVID-19 affection during the final deliberations and authorizing of the strike, emerged to proclaim success on a White House balcony Monday. It was a moment of victory for a president who has been besieged by domestic political troubles that stretch back to the deadly Afghanistan withdrawal a year ago. You remember how much shit he got for that. So Donald Trump's holding a... uh, (laughs) holding a golf tournament on his golf club. And the only the only stoppage was when he buried his ex-wife on the fucking golf course, for Christ's sake. But Joe Biden's in the Oval Office doing his fucking job and taking out the most wanted man in the world. People around the world no longer need to fear the vicious and determined killer. The United States continues to demonstrate our resolve and our capacity to defend the American people against those who seek to do us harm, Biden said. The president was first briefed in April on U.S. intelligence placing Zawahiri at a safe house in Kabul. By the way, I know I'm pronouncing it wrong. You don't have to tell me. I know. I know. You know who I'm talking about. American officials had been aware of a network supporting the terrorist leader in the Afghan capital for months and had identified his wife, daughter, and her children through multiple streams of intelligence. The women utilized terrorist tradecraft that uh, officials deemed designed to prevent anyone from following them to uh, this terrorist location in Kabul um, neighborhood. Zabahari himself didn't leave the location after his arrival this year. He showed up and did not move. As the months wore on, U.S. officials began to establish patterns at the house, including Zabahari (laughs) merging periodically onto the home's balcony for sustained periods. Now, as officials continued to monitor his activities, an effort began to complete secret 
to analyze the building's construction and structure with an eye toward developing an operation to take out the world's number one terrorist target without compromising the building's structural integrity because they don't want to hurt anybody else. At the top of mind for Biden and members of his team was to avoid civilian deaths, including the members of this guy's family who were living in the building. Independent analysts from across the government were involved to identify uh, the other occupants. Occupants. The building was located in downtown Kabul, and that, of course, presents challenges because there's a lot of people there. Surrounded by a residential neighborhood, officials were mindful their planning and information needed to be rock solid before presenting any options to Biden, and they were highly wary of leaks. Only a very small and select group at a scattering of key agencies were informed of the plans being laid. Biden was also concerned about how it might affect U.S. efforts to secure the return of Mark uh, Freyrich, an American citizen taken hostage in Afghanistan more than two years ago. A senior administration official said Biden pressed his team to mitigate risk for those efforts, along with ongoing attempts to relocate Afghans who helped the U.S. during the war. As May and June worn on, um, Biden was kept abreast of the developments. On July 1, he gathered key national security officials in the White House Situation Room to receive a briefing on a proposed operation. CIA Director Bill Burns, Director of National Intelligence Averill Haynes, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and his Deputy John Finer, and Homeland Security Advisor Liz Sherwood Randall sat around the table. They actually put more study and meeting and strategizing (laughs) than John Eastman did to fucking commit a coup. Biden was deeply engaged in the briefing and immersed in the intelligence, a senior official said. He asked detailed questions about what we knew and how we knew it because he was concerned. Again, Donald Trump would say, bomb the piss out of him. They had a scale model of this guy's house, and they brought it into the White House for the president to examine. He wanted explanations on everything, so he knew exactly what was going on. Biden asked his team for more information about the building's plan and how a strike might affect it. He flew to Camp David later that afternoon. His team remained behind convening multiple times in the Situation Room over the next weeks to complete their planning answer the president's question, and to ensure that they take every contingency to minimize risks. A parallel effort by senior administration lawyers was underway to examine the intelligence related to the sky and establish the legal basis for the operation. That legal basis is interesting. On July 25th, as he was isolating with COVID-19 in the White House residence, Biden brought his team back together to receive a final briefing. He again pressed at a granular level, down to the most minute detail, the official said, asking about any additional options that could minimize civilian casualties. He asked about the layout of the house, where the rooms were positioned behind windows and doors on the third floor, and what the potential strike would do. And he went around his team asking each official's view. At the end, he authorized a precise t- 
tailored airstrike to take out the target. Five days later, two Hellfire missiles were fired into the balcony of the safe house in Kabul at 6.18 a.m. local time. Multiple streams of intelligence confirm um, that Zawahiri was killed. Members of his family who were in other areas of the home were unharmed, the official said. Biden still isolating in the White House residence with a rebound COVID infection. And he was informed of the operation began and when it concluded. So here's the guy they call Sleepy Joe. He's second, sick for the second time with COVID. But still, he was able to put together and uh, enact a strategy to take out the world's most sought-after terrorist. And what's Fat Diaper Donnie doing? He's off playing uh, golf, hosting the Saudi Arabians, who were probably involved in 9-11 as well, because we know that Osama bin Laden, who was born in Saudi Arabia, we know that the vast majority of the pilots in that attack on 2001 and 9-11 were Saudi Arabians. Why we never checked into Saudi Arabia, I have no fucking clue. It doesn't make sense. But Joe Biden pulled this off. It doesn't sound like any civilians were injured. We took out the world's biggest terrorist, somebody who was tied to 9-11, somebody who was a right-hand man to Osama bin Laden, somebody who took over for Osama bin Laden. Now, the people, the Taliban in Afghanistan are going to say, well, you guys did that illegally. We had an agreement that that wouldn't happen when you pulled out. Well, there was another part to this agreement that uh, I'm guessing the Afghanis aren't going to mention. And that was all this was contingent on them not harboring terrorists in Afghanistan. The fact that this guy was in Afghanistan and was being protected was in direct violation of that one stipulation in the contract. So for all intents and purpose, uh, that contract was null and void. So they've got nowhere to scream about this. They've got nowhere to whine about this. As we're watching what's going on, Joe Biden is starting to pick up some speed, some momentum. You know, we've got the, the chip bill done. We are working on the uh, cherry-picked Build Back Better thing. And this is driving the Republicans fucking nuts. Now everything Joe Biden's touching is starting to work. The polls are working against him. The Republicans are constantly making mistakes that are going to hurt them in the midterms. And we'll talk more about that in the second half of the program. This is a big deal for Joe Biden to pull this off and pull it off successfully. They got their guy. They didn't hurt any civilians, and they took the time to put it together. And that's that's really one of the main differences between Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden or any other president for that matter. Most presidents take things seriously. They have some compassion. They want to do the right thing. 
Donald Trump, as I said, is not a detail guy. All he cares about, does he look good? Did we take out that terrorist and do I get credit for it? That's Donald Trump's attitude about everything. Everything they did, he acted as if he was the one that actually did it, which is, you know, fucking absolutely ridiculous. He didn't do jack shit. I mean, this is what he did in business, too. He had everybody else doing things, but he took all the credit for it. And that's what he did when he was president. Now, Joe Biden obviously was specifically involved in all the planning, all the strategizing for this thing. He got the right people doing the right things. He had the right idea of how to figure this out with everything from a model to constant meetings and taking the time and being deliberate and uh, and um, um, really focusing on how to do this right. Donald Trump never does that. He just reacts. He's just emotional. Joe Biden did what he was supposed to do in this situation, and he was successful. He deserves credit for that. So do all the other people involved in this uh, attack, if you will. America did the right thing. We made this person pay for what they did in 9-11 and ever since then. The Afghanis can cry and whine about it, but they did exactly what they told us they wouldn't do, and that is harboring terrorists. This guy is not only a terrorist, he is the terrorist. He is the big terrorist of all time, the one guy that people have been trying to get for a long time. Now, as I understand it, this was brought up to Donald Trump back when he was president. But for whatever reason, Donald Trump didn't think it was that serious. Donald Trump's not a real educated guy. He doesn't read. He doesn't understand things. He doesn't listen to things. And the fact is, he didn't think this, he didn't recognize this guy's name. So he wasn't a marquee win for Donald Trump. And because of that, he was pretty much ignored it. And that's why this gentleman has been going around uh, all this time without being touched Joe Biden took a little different tact, and he got his man. Donald Trump's playing golf with fucking terrorists. Go figure. I would love a Republican to sit down and please explain this to me. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. So, do you know the name Guy Reffitt? Probably not. But you know this story. Guy Reffitt was one of the mindless, toothless group of people that attacked the U.S. Capitol. But this guy was a special kind of stupid. A federal judge on Monday sentenced Guy Reffitt, who brought a gun to the U.S. Capitol during the January 6th insurrection and threatened House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to more than seven years in prison, the longest insurrection-related sentence to date. 
You know, it's funny how the Republicans will always say it wasn't an insurrection. There were no weapons there. Well, there was a lot of weapons, flagpoles, tasers, um, bear spray. But they said there was no guns. Yeah, yeah, there was guns. There was guns put someplace outside the area of the Capitol for like a second attack. Once they got some control there, they never used them, fortunately. But this dumb fuck had a gun strapped to his waist. And he was at the U.S. Capitol screaming about killing Nancy Pelosi. So this guy was of particular interest to the DOJ with regards to his his um, involvement in the insurrection. Now, Refit is a, a recruiter for a right-wing militia known as the Three Percenters. Uh, he was, was the first capital rioter to go to trial rather than take a plea agreement. Now, a lot of them have been sentenced, but they've all said, all right, you got me, we're fucked, I'll take the plea. Not Refit. Mr. Refit's reluctance to admit early that his behavior is illegal is concerning, District Judge Dabney Frederick said before handing down the 87-month sentence. And I want to be very clear, under no legitimate definition of the term patriot does Mr. Refit's behavior on and around January 6th fit that term. It is the antithesis of the word. So what happened is this guy gets arrested, and he's still getting mouthy. He doesn't realize he fucked up. He's still talking like he did the right thing. He's a fucking patriot. Well, unfortunately, the the judge disagreed with him and gave this motherfucker seven years and three months in fucking jail. Frederick added the officers at the Capitol are the patriots, as well as those who fought and even died to protect our democracy, our rule of law. Those in the mob are not those people. Not only are they not patriots, they are direct threat to our democracy and will be punished as such. A lot of people were were talking about um, how some of these insurrectionists got off easy with their sentences. And that's largely due to the fact that they started with the lower level ones, the ones that didn't do as much damage. But now we can see we got some that are four and five years, and now this gentleman is seven years. That suggests they're getting to the more serious crimes, and we are going to see longer sentences. We may even see a longer sentence than seven years, but let's be honest. Taking somebody out of his life because he did something stupid and putting him in jail for seven years is significant. Now, Refit was convicted by a D.C. jury in March of five felonies, including transporting and carrying a firearm on Capitol grounds, interfering with the Capitol Police, and obstructing an official proceeding. He had driven to D.C. with several firearms, one of which he carried with him on the steps of the Capitol during the early hours of the riot. I want to see Pelosi's head hit every fucking stair on the way out. And Republican leader Mitch McConnell, too, Refit said, according to a video recording he made of himself on January 6th. See, this is how stupid these fucks are. They put it on video, they post it on social media, and then they're surprised when they're convicted. The hefty sentence paired with the fact that every January 6th defendant to face a jury has been convicted could deter some of the hundreds of January 6th defendants awaiting trial to instead take a plea deal 
offered by the Justice Department. The 87-month sentence is two years longer than any other capital riot prison term handed down so far. Now, Reffitt was adamant in the early hearings about being the first January 6th defendant to take his case to trial. Yeah, he was proud of that. (laughs) I'm proud of being a fucking idiot. But on Monday, in a plea for leniency in advance for his sentencing, he said that he... He said that he was a fucking idiot. So this is where he and I agree. Who was parroting founding fathers and stupid shit like that around January 6th, and he doubled down on the rhetoric to garner money for his family during the course of his legal battle. So what he's saying is here, I said this going into the insurrection, but I kept it up because I thought people would give me money to help me with my legal problems. It seems like you wanted to be the big guy, the important guy, the first guy to go to trial, the first guy up there to reveal in the press. Frederick said to Ruffett, you wanted to be important. You wanted to be an important person who makes a difference, and yet you are going about it all the wrong ways. (laughs) And Ruffett says, my point exactly, Your Honor. Yes, I'm a dumb fuck. Refit's, now this is what I love. Refit's wife and two daughters were in the courtroom when the sentence was handed down. Refit's younger daughter, Peyton, told the judge that her father is not a threat to my family and that her family turned a blind eye to his mental health issues. Well, Peyton, I will tell you, he may not be a threat to your family, but he sure as fuck is a threat to this country, and that's all it takes. But remember, this is the same guy, and this added to his sentence, uh, where his son was talking about turning him in. And when that was brought up, <laughs> um, Mr. Reffitt said, uh, you tell on me, you could end up dead. So he's threatening his own child with death if his child rats him out. My father's name wasn't on all the flags that were there that day, that everyone was carrying that day. He's not the leader, Peyton said through the tears, at times pausing with her hand on her heart. The mother of Ashley Babbitt, the pro-Trump rioter who was shot and killed by police on January 6th, was also in the courtroom on Monday. God knows why. Now, Reffitt's son, Jackson, who testified against his father during the trial, was not in the courtroom. In a statement read aloud by prosecutors, Jackson said that his father slowly lost himself over the last five years, but that whether you view him as a father, a family member, or a friend, using these labels to justify anything he's done is completely wrong. Prosecutors had sought a sentence of almost 10 years longer than the most severe sentence to date by adding enhanced penalties to his sentence for terrorism. Prosecutor Jeffrey Nessler told the judge that Reffitt wanted to physically and literally remove members of Congress from power and that the government believed what he was doing that day was terrorism. We do believe he is a domestic terrorist, Nessler said. Frederick did not add additional penalties for terrorism, however, saying that it would create an unwarranted disparity between Reffitt's sentence and that of other rioters convicted of bringing weapons or threatening lawmakers. So for all intents and purposes, the reason why this guy's got a bigger sentence 
is because unlike everybody else, he didn't plead out and say, yeah, yeah, I'm guilty. Just do what you will with me. He doubled down. He tripled down and said, yes, this is, I'm a patriot, all this shit. And then he comes back and says, well, yeah, but the only reason I did that is because I wanted the other patriots to help support me. Apparently that didn't work because he's going to jail for seven years and three fucking months unless he gets out early for good behavior. But it doesn't sound like this guy's bright enough to pull something like that off. So I'm not feeling too confident of him getting out that much earlier. He probably won't do the full seven years, three months, but he'll do enough time to wake his ass up. You know, one of his daughters outside at a press conference, said that Donald Trump should go to prison for life. See what they're doing here. They're blaming Donald Trump to try to take the blame away from their father. Well, let me explain this. They're both at fault. They are both culpable. They both should suffer consequences. I love how they said, and as I mentioned earlier, Well, he's not a threat to our family. We don't care if he's a threat to your fucking family. He is a threat to this country. He is a threat to our politicians in Washington, D.C. He is a threat to every American of a reasonable mind that think what he did was wrong. And for that, he should be punished. There's very few things that are more egregious than trying to overthrow our government. And that's exactly what he did. And he was threatening our politicians, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, Mike Pence, Mitch McConnell. He wanted to take them all out. If he didn't, why would he bring a gun? He did bring a gun. And if a gun is the identifier for whether this is an insurrection or not, once again, the Republicans are wrong because there was at least one gun and probably multiple guns there. There were other guns stashed someplace else off the uh, grounds of the U.S. Capitol with the intention of going back and getting them and coming back at a second surge or something like that. So this guy's going to jail, his wife and family can cry and whine all they want. I don't feel sorry for them. Frankly, if I was them, knowing the type of person he is and having had experiences with people of that mentality, you should be happy that he's in jail because I guarantee you at some one point or another, he is detrimental to that family, whether it be violence or just his influence. Can you imagine living with somebody like that? For fuck's sake. All right, Republican senators are now freaking out a little bit. They have discovered that trying to block veterans from health care isn't really playing that well among American voters. With fewer than 100 days until the 2022 midterm elections, GOP senators who previously supported legislation to care for the veterans with cancer due to burn pits voted it down. We've talked about that. Now, guess what? They're having some second thoughts. (laughs) I got to tell you, the Republicans, in my mind, seem to be like giving away the midterms. They overturn Roe v. Wade, taking constitutional rights away from 50% of this country. They're trying to openly 
suppress votes of people of color and they're promoting white supremacy. They're marginalizing and almost trying to criminalize LGBTQ people. How do you do this stuff and alienate this many people and think you're going to win a fucking election for Christ's sake? Now you throw this into it, you tell us how much you love the veterans and how much you support the troops, but then this happens and you don't do it. You don't support them only because, because you don't care about them, only because you want to own the lips. That's the only reason they did this. It was a mere weeks ago when 84 senators, all Democrats and a hefty chunk of Republicans, voted to pass the very same bill. One small tweak in language was eliminated involving taking over private care, but it didn't change anything meaningful in the bill. But last week, Republicans voted it down. They've been trying to justify it by saying that the Democrats added all these budget spending measures, but those were actually in the bill they supported. Former Daily Show host John Stewart raged at Republican officials for the excuse videos that, that, that have gone viral. Now, veterans, not surprisingly, are out protesting by staging a sit-on, sit-in along the halls of the Senate office buildings, forcing Republicans to walk by them. Activist Paul Reichoff of Righteous Media told MSNBC's Nicole Wallace that at least one of the men sleeping on the floor is hooked up to oxygen. Can you imagine that? There's a gentleman protesting, sleeping in the hallways, hooked up to oxygen, and these fucking Republicans have to walk by them every day. It's not surprising that they're having second thoughts about whether this was a good idea or not. Former Donald Trump Homeland Security Chief of Staff Miles Taylor said the opposition is actually part of an ongoing effort by lawmakers like Ted Cruz to defund the Veterans Administration and privatize it. He recalled when he was working for the Trump administration that there were many, uh, many who were trying to bring down the VA. Why? But decided it couldn't happen in Trump's first term because he would need to be reelected. So as much as they sit there and they tell you, oh, we love the troops, they do not. They don't want to help the troops, even though these people were put in this position because of the actions of our government. Now, but other Republicans claim that it was an effort by Republican Senator Pat Toomey who tried to claim a budgetary gimmick. He just made that shit up. He pulled it out of his ass. That wasn't true. As political strategists say frequently, however, if you're trying to explain yourself, you're losing. Regardless of their reasoning, the GOP was quickly forced to play defense against both Democrats and veterans advocates who were caught off guard by Republican delay tactics after the party greenlit a nearly identical bill in June. Senator John Thune has tried to blame Democrats for Republicans voting against the bill, saying they screwed up the first time. His problem is he has to explain how Democrats screwed up but still got 84 votes to fucking pass it. We all know why they didn't pass it the second time. They took a calculated risk and they fucking failed. And it seems like every time they turn around, every time they make a decision, every time they do something, it blows up in their face. So what do they do? They just fucking do it again. What are these idiots thinking? 
Under normal circumstance, they would have already sunk the midterms. And to be honest with you, I think they have. But they don't think so. These idiots honestly believe that they are going to win the House of Representatives. Not so sure about the Senate, but the House of Representatives. Now, if they win the House of Representatives, that's kind of important. The Democrats can't allow that to happen. And I'll be honest, the Democrats are playing this exactly right. And they're getting a lot of help from the Republicans because they are doing some stupid shit. And taking this coverage away from veterans is the epitome of doing stupid shit. Now, on Monday, the uh, Associated Press reported that the House investigators want to speak with the Inspector General of the Department of Homeland Security alleging a cover-up about the Secret Service missing text messages about the January 6th attack. Now, this, this is a fucking scary, fucked-up mess. It's one thing when the Secret Service loses texts from the 5th and 6th of January leading up to the insurrection, just whoops, They were asked three, four, five times to get it. They made a change, apparently, in their phones, and they accidentally lost these texts. But here's the thing. There is an inspector general. Now, an inspector general is supposed to be a nonpartisan, kind of unbiased guy to be a watchdog on various departments. Almost all departments have them. So when they do something screwed up, this uh, inspector general, this independent inspector general, is supposed to go through it and call them out on their shit. But here's the thing. This inspector general knew about this in February and didn't tell the January 6th committee until July. So we clearly have some issues with the people in the Secret Service. We have issues with people in the Department of Homeland Security and even the Inspector General. If you've somehow tainted the Inspector General, the whole thing is a fucking wash. It's done. The whole thing should be brought down and started back up again fresh because there's nobody that I could imagine that you can trust in these organizations. The leaders of the powerful House Oversight and Homeland Security Committee wrote a letter to Inspector General Joseph Kufari on Monday detailing the urgent need for interviews with his staff regarding new evidence of alleged efforts to cover up the erasure of Secret Service communications. We are writing with grave new concerns over your lack of transparency and independence, which appear to be jeopardizing the integrity of a crucial investigation run by your office, House Oversight Chair Carolyn Maloney and Homeland Security Chairman Benny Thompson wrote in the letter. They also renewed their calls for Kufari to rescue or recuse himself from investigations of the erased text. Yeah, this guy wants to investigate his own fucking crime. Now, Thompson also chairs the House Select Committee, as you know. The committee said it has obtained evidence that shows the inspector's general office first learned of the missing Secret Service text messages as a part of its investigation into the attack on the U.S. Capitol 
in May, but they actually knew about it in February, and that the emails between the DHSIG officials so the agency decided to abandon efforts to recover those text messages in July of 2021, nearly a year before they first informed Congress they were erased. I don't know how this happens. It, it, it makes no damn sense at all. Now, the documents raise troubling new concerns that your office not only failed to notify Congress for more than a year that critical evidence in the investigation was missing, but your senior staff deliberately chose not to pursue that evidence and then appear to have taken steps to cover up these failures, the letter that was written by Benny Thompson continued. Now, this comes after a recent report that the Inspector General's office abandoned a plan in February to try to retrieve the missing text messages. It also comes as high-ranking Secret Service officials come under scrutiny over their ties with former President Donald Trump. House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff has separately said he would like the Secret Service officials to explain under oath how the text messages, which are supposed to be protected federal records, came to be deleted in the first place. Now, you see, this is the key. It's one thing for them to say, whoops, the dog ate it. But when you put them under oath, that puts a whole nother vibe in the air, because if they lie, that's perjury, that's fucking jail. We get a lot of Republicans, we get a lot of these people with the Secret Service spewing all kinds of shit, but not once has it been under oath. That's the key here. And the January 6th committee, the DOJ, and everybody else that's involved is not going to allow them to waylay this in any way. They're going to have to fucking testify, and it's not going to go well for the Secret Service and all the people involved, especially that uh, Inspector General, who should have been the the one that's unbiased and handled it properly. Clearly, he doesn't understand his job. He failed in his job, and he should be, at the very least, fired, but he should also be prosecuted. I mean, because when we're talking about text or emails in and around an insurrection, an attempted coup on this country, who would think you'd need those texts? Jesus Christ. And they were asked for it four or five times, and they refused it. If that isn't a red flag, I don't know what the fuck a red flag is. So I'm hoping that we will get these people (laughs) taking care of this shit and holding people accountable. Attorney Paul Rosenweig told uh, CNN that former President Donald Trump could be making a big mistake if he believes making an early announcement that he's running for president in 2024 that it will save him from being prosecuted. Now, I've heard people say this. Well, if he's running for office, then we've got a problem. Merrick Garland suggested that's not a thing. But here's an angle I hadn't thought about, and this makes a lot of sense. While discussing the latest moves that federal prosecutors are making in their grand jury investigation of the January 6th insurrection, um, CNN asked Rosenweig about past statements he made about the United States Department of Justice accelerating its investigation of Trump if he made an announcement of running for president. Now, he went on to say, I think Trump has it exactly backwards. 
He said he thinks if he runs, that will deter prosecution. But in reality, something like Ford's pardon of Nixon brought, uh, that pardon that they, they brought to Nixon was on a premise that Nixon's agreement to fade away from the public scene. See, that's the deal. Ford did pardon him, but he said, you got to get the fuck out of politics. You you can't be involved anymore. Same thing with Bill Clinton by remaining on the political scene. Trump makes it more likely rather than less likely if there's evidence of criminality, the Justice Department will be compelled to bring charges. They'll have to. It'll be in the public's uh, purview. People will know what happened. Uh, They can't slip it under the rug or anything like that. So this gentleman may be exactly right. The fact that he wants to announce he's running for president, thinking that's going to save him, it may do just the opposite. Rosenweig also said that it appeared, based on reports about testimony, the grand jury has heard that Trump is now the subject of the DOJ's investigation, although there's no indication yet that he's being targeted by the prosecutors, but I think um, I think it's pretty clear that that's what's happening. Last thing I want to bring up, and this this one kind of pisses me off, but it's typical. Far right conspiracy podcaster Alex Jones gloated, I mean, like a day ago, gloated on his program about his latest bankruptcy scheme would slash defamation damages to Sandy Hook families and tie up even the reduced amount of for years. Jones signed a Chapter 11 bankruptcy program or protection petition Friday to shield the InfoWars podcast parent company Free Speech Systems. His co-defendant in two defamation cases. InfoWars reportedly raked in $65 million in revenue last year. All these Trump fucks pouring in the money. We know how they like to do that. Jones was found liable for defamation last year in cases in Connecticut and Texas and for repeatedly insisting that the 21st grade children killed in a mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012 in Newtown, Connecticut, and their devastated parents were crisis actors in a fake anti-gun stunt staged by the U.S. government. There were also six adults that were killed. The trial in Texas, where InfoWars is based, is currently being held to determine the amount of damages Jones must pay. Now, Jones attempted and was forced to drop a similar ploy earlier this year when he filed bankruptcy case for InfoWars and for trademark and web domain rights holding companies in a bid to force a restrictive monetary settlement with the Sandy Hook families. Jones claimed on his podcast Sunday that his current bankruptcy filing would slash the bond he'll have to post for an appeal to only half of his declared net worth, and then he still plans to tie whatever damages are decided within that reduced amount for years as the InfoWars podcast continues to operate. He also claimed, we've never lied, and that's all we have is our credibility. Well, dumb fuck, you have no credibility. You did, in fact, lie. It's pretty clear. It's on fucking videotape. But this is what they do. They gaslight. They talk about shit. They try to delay it. I don't think it's going to work in this situation. 
This is going to end up in the destruction of Alex Jones and his business. All that's going to be revealed over the coming months is going to take its toll on InfoWars and Alex Jones. And let's remember, Alex Jones is not necessarily out of the woods criminally. You see, he was part of the insurrection. He had his fingers in the middle of that shit. And he may be looking at indictments that have nothing to do with this civil suit, might have everything to do with criminal charges because of the insurrection. I love how these clowns, Steve Bannon and Alex Jones, they get their ass kicked. They get their ass kicked and they still stand up and say, we're winning. We're fuck you. You're not winning and you know you're not winning. It's just going to be a matter of time before you're done. And you're going to cry and whine and talk about how you're mistreated. But fuck you. Fuck you. I hope you get destroyed. I hope your your life goes to shit. I hope your company fails. I hope everybody around you struggles. Jones' money scheme was being played out during dramatic testimony over the pain and suffering of the Sandy Hook families who not only grapple with the loss of their children in a mass shooting, but are also forced to face harassment and death threats by Jones' unhinged supporters who are weaponizing his lies. You see, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's not bad enough that your kid was killed. But now because you have the audacity to want to stand up for your kids— Now you're getting death threats. That's who this fuck is. This guy deserves to be in jail. He won't go to jail over this situation, but hopefully it will destroy him and destroy his company and make him a non-factor, take him out of the equation for the future. Criminally speaking, we'll see what the January 6th committee and the DOJ comes up with regarding the insurrection, because I don't think he's out of the woods there at all. He was in the thick of it. Remember, didn't Donald, didn't he say that Donald Trump asked him to lead the march to the Capitol? Didn't he promote this shit on his show? Wasn't he part and parcel to getting people to the Capitol? I think he was. And I think Mr. Jones will be surprised to find out, and only surprised because he's an arrogant narcissist. Anybody with an intelligent level of average would understand he's in trouble. But instead, he decides to take the route to being the tough guy. Well, he's not long for this world as a tough guy, as Steve Bannon is going to find out very shortly when he's sentenced to whatever jail time he's going to get. This tough guy persona is going to fade very fucking quickly all right we're going to wrap it up for the rational boomer podcast i want to thank you very much for taking the time spending it with me i hope you have a great day and we will talk to you again tomorrow thanks for listening to the rational boomer podcast don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode we'll see you next time (laughs) 